Good morning. I know some of you are thinking, we just spent a month getting through a couple verses of Luke, and now we're out of Luke completely, wasting an entire Sunday on Romans. What's going on? Uh, well, I'll tell you, my name, if we haven't met before or met yet, my name is Dale. I am one of the pastor's elders here at Redeemer, and you might uh, not know it yet, but you have actually walked into church today on what is commonly and internationally known as Orphan Sunday or Stand Sunday, and so you are actually part of a service where uh, we are going to sort of talk about some of the ways that God has been at work in the body of Redeemer through that. My wife, Christine, and I, we help run the orphan care ministry here at the church. And uh, we've had this, this actual, this Sunday marks five years that that ministry has been going. And we have seen so much blessing and success. Oh, thanks, Lee. Um, We've seen a lot, of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of blessing in that, particularly in this last year. Um, now, we, my wife and I, we, did not, we have not adopted children. We have four of our own. You'd be forgiven for asking because my children are a little bit more ethnically ambiguous. Um, they've got this lovely olive skin that they got from uh, my wife. Meanwhile, I modeled for the white crayon in the crayon box. Um, in fact, if you were to see a picture of me with my extended family, my in-laws, you might think that I was adopted. Um, I am on the right. Uh, if you couldn't see it, if you couldn't make it out. Um, no, actually, uh, a chief reason we're here today is to rejoice in what the Lord has done uh, in this ministry, uh, because in his uh, kindness, uh, he has blessed us with a lot of growth this last year. The ministry was started basically because my wife Christina saw several years ago that there were a lot of families in the church walking down the fostering adoption path in parallel lines without a clear reference to each other. And so um, unless a connection was made, they thought there was a certain extent to where they were kind of suffering on their own, suffering in silence. Um, and so she really just wanted to make a group where everybody that was involved in that would just know everybody else that was involved in that and that we would just keep those families all together. And I'm excited to say uh, we've never had a mission of trying to hit a certain number of uh, foster children in our church or adopted children in our church. That's never been the goal um, because this is such a calling from the Lord that would be a silly goal to have. It's, we've never had um, a, a, like a thermostat on a whiteboard and we're trying to draw up to a certain line. Hasn't been, hasn't been what we've been looking for. But even despite the fact that we've never sought to do that, 2022 specifically was the year that we said, whatever, however much our foot is on the gas for that, we're going to remove it completely. And we're just going to serve the families in the church in 2022. And we, you know, if, if there's new placements, if there's new adoption, if there's new fostering, great, but we're not really it's, we're not incentivizing that in any real particular way. But, so that was our timing. We said 2022, we'll just, we'll just take a year to serve the families here. God's timing was different. Uh, he saw fit in 2022 to raise up more families from our church than ever to enter into adoption and foster care, such that we had four adoption placements uh, within w one month's time in four different families. Uh, we have... Uh, multiple families that are waiting in the wings that have become certified after several years of certification, waiting to receive a phone call for a placement so that we might soon in the next few months get another six children um, adopted into the body of this church. 
so the Lord has blessed us uh, significantly. Um, we're really grateful because what does that mean? That means that we see a lot of God sanctifying the families in our church um, and helping us to clear the gospel to children who might not otherwise have heard it. Uh, and as well as painting a picture of the gospel for the other families that attend Redeemer so that they can see what godly service in that capacity looks like. Uh, not only that, um, but we started a Parents Night Out program this last year. Uh, who's volunteered for that program before? Raise your hand. You can see a good chunk of people. We had one here last night. It takes about 60 volunteers every night that we do that. And that's a, that's a quarterly thing that we do. Um, and the Lord, you know, like there's... There's a little bit of ways we've just feel, you know, so blessed beyond what we deserve because even Christ says, like, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. But in his mercy has given us enough workers every time this happens. And when that Parents' Night Out comes in, that is families from the community, foster and adoptive families from the community, uh, most of whom don't attend here, some of whom don't attend anywhere, dropping their children off here so that we can watch them for a small amount of time so they can just go and take a break have a date night together, have some time together, and that so that members of the body here serve as buddies to those kids that are here and they can just play with them, love them, show them that there are people in this world uh, who care about them. And so again, in the Lord's mercy, uh, they get to feel and hear about the love of Jesus and God the Father. And many of them don't have a category of what a good father looks like. And so we rejoice in God's mercy because he's raised up these servants and we can't take any credit for what he's done. So uh, is that the catch? Because if you saw Romans, we're talking about affliction this morning. And uh, that, so there's, there's some things to be borne out in that. Uh, mostly that when we are reaching out in obedience to the Lord, sometimes other things come with that obedience. And we've had to learn in a year's past, increasingly in the last year, that when you invite brokenness into the church or into your family or into your house or to your dinner table, that brokenness is seldom fixed overnight. And it might not be fixed at all in the way that we want it to be fixed. So as we've seen more families answer the call to reach out and serve in this way, uh, we've seen the daily lives and routines of these families get increasingly difficult and, and sometimes get completely upended. And in many cases, a lot of these cases, uh, answers, easy answers are not possible. And it's difficult sometimes to even know the right answer. And many believers that have arrived at the conviction to follow the Lord down this particular path of service have found themselves at different times asking why. Why would that child be taken from a stable home and placed into a tenuous, even dangerous home? Why has what I thought was obedience to the Lord led to more discord in my own family? Why has God not honored faithfulness the way that I thought he would? And so it's become increasingly clear that we as believers who have been purchased by the blood of Christ need a strong theology of suffering and affliction so that we can move forward knowing that God's love is not removed from us in great times of trial and affliction, but rather that he draws near to the brokenhearted. Those who have become brokenhearted in the name of Christ look forward to an inheritance 
that will outweigh any possible difficulty that we may face in this world. So, um, we're going to talk about a few different things here. We're gonna talk about who we are in Christ, what our identity is. We're going to talk about God's means of grace in our lives. So how, after we have that identity, does God stir up in us? Does he cause us to grow? And then we're gonna talk about our eternal hope from those things. So let's spend some time, before we get started, let's spend some time in prayer and uh, we will pray together. So I invite you, uh, pray for your own hearts. Pray for... um, that God would work in this room, that he would move through us, that he would convict us, that we would feel his love, that we would feel his grace. And I ask also that you'd pray for me, pray that any words that I say this morning would be for the Lord, for his glory and his good, that I would speak correctly and rightly. Father, we love you and we trust you and we pray that you would be here and it's in Christ's name, amen. Well, I think the first thing, so we're gonna talk about who we are in Christ uh, from the very first couple verses here. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Of God. Uh, I think we need to understand in life, in general, uh, a key thing we need to figure out about ourselves is our identity, who we are fundamentally. Because every circumstance that we're going to face in life is going to be colored by the narrative that we believe about ourselves, right? where our identity is in part self-determined, it's also socially determined. Um, and if we have a negative concept of what that is, a negative concept of identification ourselves, who we are, what we are, uh, then, or no concept at all, then that typically means that when we face various trials and difficulties in this world, the trials will just sweep us right up, right? Because if we're not rooted in what's true about us, regardless of the circumstances around us, if we lack a strongly held identity, who we are, who I am, then the, whatever our present circumstance is, is going to become our leading signifier in how we see ourselves. So in times of great success and blessing, you are a victor. You are reaping properly the uh, spoils of your effort But then if you're in a time of great struggle and difficulty, you are a failure or a victim of malice or others. Spiritually, I think this looks like Paul. Paul has this description of immature believers in Ephesians 4 um, where they're in Ephesus and he tells them to stop acting like children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness. You'll believe what anyone tells you or says about you once you hear it. If your identity is that malleable, then you are not very well prepared for times of difficulty and struggle, right? Because, you, because that difficulty and struggle is going to overwhelm you without a key concept of who you are. So I think um, uh, we might find ourselves with a weak identity or a negative identity 
Alternatively, we might find ourselves with a really strong identity rooted in something that feels eternal but is actually really, really temporal. Um, for me, like what that looks like, I'm a father of four children, 10 and under, which actually means in 14 short years, I will be an empty nester. Uh, if I mention that to my wife, that makes her really, really nervous um, because that's a really frightening pace. Um, but to be a parent is to, and is to constantly have to adjust who you think you are to the needs of these children that are in front of you, right? Because if I, if I stake my identity, I'm a father of four young children, how quickly does that go away? It doesn't last very long. And then I'm a father of, you know, I'm just an empty nest parent in a, in a big empty house, um, wandering, lonely. Um, to be a parent uh, is to constantly have to adjust to that. And then you also see your own children as you see their own identities grow. And you see them also as people in need of grace, with their own sins, with their own difficulties. And they can't be an extension of your identity anymore. Or if they are, that means a lot of trouble for both of you, right? They have to be their own identity. They have to find the Lord. Uh, I think a really clear just cultural example of, of this kind of identity shift is when we look at young athletes, because when you see young athletes, you almost don't need the word young because there aren't very many old athletes. There are athletes and there are former athletes. In Stanley Teitelbaum's book, uh, Sports Heroes, Fallen Idols, he says the following, speaking of retired athletes. An athlete who makes it beyond the two-year mark in professional sports can expect his career to last five to 10 years depending on the sport. That means that by age 35, when most people are approaching their prime, most athletes are past their peak and must adjust to a more mundane life away from the bright lights. They tend to ride the crest of stardom as young men, yet all but the elite, the best of the best, are out of the game by their 30s. Most of today's heroes do not fare well tomorrow. While some are able to adjust to retirement, many flounder. Their early success and early retirement program them to orient themselves to the past rather than the present or the future. Their identity becomes the thing that they were at one point in their life but are no longer. Reggie Jackson said, you don't retire at your convenience. You don't die when you're ready. It's an inconvenience to die, death referring to his own retirement. Jim Bouton was a pitcher for the Yankees in the 60s. He also played uh, in Houston for one year uh, in 69 to 70. Uh, he said this about the close of his last game. As I started throwing stuff into my bag, I could feel the wall, invisible but real, forming around me. I was suddenly an outsider, a different person, someone to be shunned, a leper. Notice some of the language that both of those players used to describe their feeling of their core identity slipping away. I was an outsider. I was a leper. I was dead. So, I mean, it sounds a lot like a, the past identity of people that have believed in Christ, but that was their identity then. That was their identity of the close of their career. What was their prime? And now they're left with 40, 50, 60 years to say, what do I do now? My entire life was oriented around something that ended. Taking it closer to the topic of hand, imagine how the identity development of a young child is affected when their core familial relationship 
of a mother and a father and their siblings and their extended community is broken and disrupted due to abuse or neglect. At those early phases in life, identity is formed almost purely in relational uh, context with those key relationships and people in your life. And when those are removed, identity is disrupted at young ages. The most common long-term side effects of that among young children are low self-esteem, lack of trust, childhood depression, and self-hatred. So if we look at the results of some of these insufficient identities, I think if we try and find the inverse of them, we might have a little bit of what a successful identity would look like. What would an identity have to have to satisfy some of our core needs? I think taking a stab at it, it would have to be one that gives us worth and value. It would have to be one that successfully places us in a broader community because an identity that is only true to you, if I have an identity that's only true to me and you have an identity that's only true to you, then we're gonna run into conflict but my identity about you is, is a little bit different than yours. So it needs to place you in a broader community. Uh, it needs to be future-oriented, unlike an identity based on past success. We cannot have a successful identity based off of a thing that has finished and is now over. It has to be something that is continuing. And then it also needs to be something that I'm saying would give us life, is life-giving which is something that actually feeds our, our soul. So then, if we take that as kind of a definition of identity, what resources do we have as blood-bought children of the Lord? And what identity does God grant to the children that he has grafted into his family? So remember when Paul earlier, just in Ephesians 4, he was talking about immaturity, to be tossed to and fro, to be swayed by every wind of doctrine or human cunning. He continues just the next verse in Ephesians. He gives us the next step. Rather than that, rather speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. So let's like match that text, Ephesians 4, lay it on top of Romans 5, and I think what you'll see is that God has spoken the truth to us. Notice he didn't speak the truth to us in obstinance or annoyance, he spoke the truth to us in what? Love. It is it's God's love for us. And in, in this, he asks us to grow in every way to be like Christ. You are valued and loved because God the Father has placed that love and that value on you in Jesus Christ. Aside from that, we're not to do this alone, but as members of a community together, the body of Christ, so that we may in every way be built up. This benefits all of us because God has given to the body of Christ gifts that can only be brought about by certain members. So there are things, this is why this kind of goes with the same thing. We don't want everybody to just go out and adopt a child next week or start it or foster a child next week because there are other gifts in this body that need to be used, gifts of encouragement, gifts of resources, gifts of truth, gifts of teaching. God has brought us all together. And I want you to understand this because this is true for me, this is true for everyone in here. You are here in this church 
to both receive love and be reminded of your worth in Jesus Christ. And then also you are here to give love to others and then remind them of their worth in Jesus Christ. Because the narratives that go in our head, right, are very quick to start telling us things about our identity that we have just determined from the word of God are not true. And so you need then other members of the body of Christ to come to you and tell you those things about you are not true. You are bought in love through Christ to the glory of God the Father. That is true of you. And then as we remind each other of that, that becomes great fuel for moving forward as we serve Christ. So now we stand in grace, Romans 5, knowing that God has given us a future in Christ and that we are waiting for it to be revealed so that even in our deepest pains and struggles and difficulties, we can view those not in light of the next 30, 40, 50, 10 years, but we can view them in light of eternity, ever after. We are in the midst of birth pains right now, waiting for the future promise of Christ. And because we are valued with the love given to us by God through Jesus Christ, because in addition to, to this, he has given us each other to remind us of that status, and because we know that we have a future hope and glory, we can walk in the newness of life, Romans 6, 4. We can do this continually because we know the Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, but that rather, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us, Psalm 103. This is who we are. And if you are in Christ today, that is true of you, church. That is true of you forever. And it will never not be true because it's an imperishable identity that has been given to you completely unearned by the grace of God. That is who you are in Christ today. And so if that is true of us, and if we believe that is true of us, and we were reminded that that is true of us, then what does the Lord want us to do with that knowledge? So what is God's means of grace to move us forward? Not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces, produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. So if you are found in Christ today, know this, you are found in Christ forever. This is a forever stamp of your approval. You're now a co-heir in the kingdom. And that said, we know all of us that even knowing that, we live pretty contrary to that sometimes, right? We all have our own varying degrees of complacency, of selfishness, uh, of inward focus that any of us would care to admit. And I can say this for me. God first called me 26 years ago, which is longer than some of you, um, but a whole lot shorter than others. But I can say, I've seen the Lord be merciful in ways that I don't deserve. And he has spared me from giving me what I wanted at certain times to give me what I needed. I can also say in those 26 years, I have seen the most spiritual growth and sanctification comes from time when I was most in need and God did not leave me. More than any specific Bible study or book study, which we should continue to do, I remember when God most stayed with me in difficulty. And that's when those studies that we do, why we come here to study the word, that's when that theory becomes reality. When the things we tell ourselves that are true about God, we then have to put into practice when he puts us in a real situation. 
I imagine that this process is true for most Christians. I think I imagine that most of the older saints in this room, if they were to give you the, the story of how the Lord has worked them into where they are, that story is going to come with some wounds and some bruises that the Lord used to bring them to the place that they are now. And then they serve as an encouragement to us, to us younger folk. Um, the, as, as our difficulties abound, I think we need to remember that if we only have small problems, if our problems are small, we only need a small God to solve those problems. The larger our problems get, the more competent, powerful, loving of a God we need to solve those problems. So I want us to look, what's Paul's, uh, what's Paul's argument here? Uh, because it's important to look at the words. He's not just describing magic, like some sort of voodoo process, like trials happen, and then eventually magically down the road, all of a sudden you become a better person. That's not really the goal, that's not exactly how it's happening. He actually is making a logical argument. So just say, he starts with affliction. Affliction comes to you. Whatever it is, maybe you caused it. Maybe it was just a foolish, a foolish decision. You're now in it. Maybe someone else caused it. Maybe it just happened. You know, maybe it's seemingly random. We know it isn't, but maybe it is. The affliction comes. And as it begins to press on your life, to the degree that you're able to sustain it, you will begin to develop endurance. Just like a long distance runner that is conditioning endurance for more suffering. So think of a child again. Again, I have four. Uh, think of a child who can easily melt down because you gave them the food that they asked for but on a plate that was the wrong color. And parents in this room know that that is a real struggle. That's a thing that can happen. If not that exact thing, similar things. For instance, you might give them the plate that they wanted but they've since decided they no longer want that plate. And they would like you to transfer the food from one plate to another. Now, that is because a child has no endurance for affliction. <laughs> and I mean that like sincerely. They have not developed any endurance for any level of affliction. That's why childs break down crying when their shoes are untied. Even though you can always tie their shoe for them, even though their worth is not determined by their ability to tie shoes, they have not yet learned that uh, the endurance for even these small sufferings that are in their lives. It is the repeated exposure of those sufferings and then exhortation by loving outsiders, hopefully parents, hopefully loving family members that can then help them overcome this so that you can say to your children, I know where you're coming from. I too at one time could not abide certain color plates. <laughs> but now... When I was a child, I thought like a child. Now I reason like a man. I could eat off a piece of cardboard if I had to. And it's not going to ruin my day. I'll figure it out. As your repetition of, this is three, this is how we get to character. As your repetition of and tolerance for affliction grows, it begins to change you into someone who can sustain larger burdens for longer periods of time. To the extent that you have the su sufficient support you need to bear a burden, you can soon bear more. And what's also true is that as your capacity for affliction begins to outwardly expand, you move not just from bearing the afflictions that are in your own life, but you seek to bear the afflictions of others too. 
A healthy marriage is like a microcosm of this, where you have two people, each with their own problems, joining together, helping to solve each other's problems. And then given enough time, the connection of that marriage itself and the trust you place in each other becomes more fuel for your endurance. The relationship itself tells you, we will be able to sustain this. We can get through this. We know because the Lord has delivered us before. So that leaves us with the last leap. So we've gone from affliction. Um, affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. So then we have to get to hope. And so far, the progression has been logical and uh, applies not just to spiritual things. You can apply it to, you know, uh, other spheres as well. But what about hope? Why does character produce hope? How do we get from our ability to endure a trial and suffering to the ability where we hope more in something? This matters, not least of which because I named the title of this message, Hope Does Not Disappoint, and if I can't get there, I'm in trouble, and we have to rename it real quick. I think there's two answers to this. One, one is, a, um, a, there's a Christian psychiatrist. His name's uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson. He's great, he's awesome. He's written several books about shame, suffering. Uh, he uses this language that's actually from the field of neuroscience. Um, those things that we focus our attention on become the things that we remember. And the things that we remember become our anticipated future literally how your brain works and processes things. The things that you focus your attention on, that you think the most on, become the things that you remember. And the things that you remember become your anticipated future. So what does that mean? It means that all the stories from your life that you remember most clearly, positive or negative, become key shapers of your future perspective. So somebody that believes in a world that is... Uh, causeless and futile, if that's their starting point, then the burdens and afflictions of their life are going to grow increasingly uh, in exasperation because that was the filter through which they viewed everything. That was how they saw it. And that was also where their brain stayed. Their brain stayed on the difficulty. The Christian, however, can look at every moment of their lives, even the really difficult ones, <clears throat> and view them through the lens that God was using all of those circumstances to craft them into who they are now. We can look back knowing that God does not waste our suffering because he will ultimately redeem all of it in future glory. This is why the reminders of scripture are comforting. Remember the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Surely you don't think that his arm is weak to save now. When we know who we are in Christ, when we know our identity in Christ, it gives us both the responsibility and the freedom <clears throat> to enter into suffering without fear that we will ever run out of hope or comfort to offer. Second Corinthians says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. <clears throat> through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you 
patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will share in the comfort. The Lord comforts us in our afflictions so that then we may be able to take that promise and go comfort people in their afflictions. It is the primary part of our shared identity as our people redeemed by God to take part in the sufferings of Christ so that we may then proportionally take part in the comfort that God gives and then we can be a comfort to the world. Our hope then is to the extent that we suffer affliction to any degree or difficulty here on this earth, you will share in the everlasting comfort of Christ when he comes, when his glory will be revealed for your good. And if you remember Lawson preaching a couple weeks ago, he talked about um, the man who is forgiven much is that much more grateful for what they've been forgiven. If you've been forgiven a debt of $3 billion, it will shape you more than if you've been forgiven a debt of $100, unless you're, you know, unless you don't have $100. Sorry, kids. Um, But uh, to that point, there's a positive side of that. As much as you cast your hope on the Lord, as much as you put your hope in the future promise of God, to that degree, you will not be let down by, by Christ when he comes. You will not be let down by God's final deliverance of you. And your hope will be greater because of what, how much you hoped in him when you were here on this earth. And so we talk about our eternal hope. <clears throat> this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out on our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We know who we are in Christ and we here in the church constantly remind each other of that reality. And then we draw great strength from that. And also we know that to the extent we face trials and afflictions in this world, we can expect comfort from God himself and that in the end, God will bring about, all, bring about good for, of all things for believers. And so for our last topic, I wanna to briefly talk about the specific kind of affliction that, we're, that, is, that is more pressing today which is we are not talking about affliction that is caused solely from a fallen world. It's not just from our sins or the sins of others. We're not talking about an affliction of things that just happened to us, difficult things. Harvey was an affliction that happened to us and then we had to deal with it. I'm talking about Christians who with the eyes of Christ look in the world and step into affliction knowingly. They have taken the eyes of Jesus and they have had compassion on sheep without a shepherd. And we have some shining examples of that in this congregation because they serve for us as object lessons in having a faith that places joyful obedience ahead of complacent comfort. So I'm thinking of families like the nobles Uh, If you don't already know Josh and Kim, uh, there's a chance that when you leave here and bump into a child, it's one of theirs. Um, Yet despite already having seven to call their own, through the generational faithfulness in their family, they decided that one more would be fine. and And the Lord has apportioned them that much more grace and love to give out. The church is blessed by their example and they will not be disappointed by Christ's faithfulness to them. I'm thinking of families like Travis and Julie Bowles who have welcomed a young boy into their home sight unseen, 
meeting him fresh off the plane. And this despite the fact that Travis recently left an almost tenured career at HPD a few months prior in order to begin planting a church. And so you would ask, one of your things that you would ask is, well, it seems like you kind of already crossed off the list that you were serving the Lord. Why do you feel the need to, to try and outdo us all that much more? God was gonna let you kind of coast for a while just on the planning the church thing. You've decided also to adopt somebody. Isn't it planning a church enough of a calling? And I'd say that's not quite the right question because the call to lay your life down as a shepherd for the people of God and to lay your comfort aside to take a child into your home are the same impulse of godly service to a weary world. I don't know if you guys know Dave and Kristen Day. Uh, they're currently in the process of loving a two-year-old child that's in their home. And I don't wanna give anything away, but Dave's not exactly in his prime childbearing years. We don't know how old Kristen is. We can't ask. It's rude. <laughs> Why does a family of near-empty nesters want to start that process over again? Why would they take on that difficulty? I would venture, because the love that Christ has already poured into them is now spilling outwards to love another family that needed that love, that needed that comfort, and so they are being faithful to that family. And again, we are blessed by their example, and they will not be disappointed by Christ's faithfulness to them. This last one was hard last service. I'll see if I can get through it. Most of you know Scotty and Lauren Jinks. Um, Scotty and Lauren Jenks uh, just emerged on the other side of kind of a hellish four and a half year fostering process uh, to officially adopt their son last August. Um, there's too much to say and that we cannot say about all the ins and outs of that process. There were a lot of difficulties and trials and frustrations and it's a lot of these are trials and struggles and frustrations that continue and then we still ask why? And to be honest, we can't tell you why every situation played out the way that it did. I can tell you this confidently though, that despite the besetting difficulties of their story, Scotty and Lauren Jinx are more like Jesus Christ today than they were five years ago. And the encouragement that they have been to us to see a family pursue that faithfulness and that obedience has painted a picture of the gospel to our church that we would, not other, that we would otherwise have missed out on if they had not been there to live it out. And we are blessed by their example and they will not be disappointed in Christ's faithfulness to them. And there are a lot of other stories like that in our church. There are people that are much more removed from the initial adoption process, that people that have done it for 25 years or more. And, they are, and not all of those situations, in fact, many of those situations are difficult. And they didn't tie up nicely. They don't all, unfortunately, though it is our hope, they don't all end with children making a Hallmark-style profession of faith and then just being good, healthy children the rest of their lives. That hasn't been the story. But the stories of pain run deep, however. The stories of gospel redemption run deeper. We are not called to know all the answers. I'm reminded this is like the story from John 9, which is the, the blind man who was born blind and Jesus spits in the mud and rubs the mud on his eyes and then he can see weird stuff, right? But the whole story is really interesting because he eventually goes before the Pharisees and, and the Pharisees say, what happened? And what's his answer? I don't really know. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. 
What's the purpose of his suffering? I don't really know. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. The story, we are not called to know all the answers, but we can still see the Lord at work. We still see the effects of the Lord at work. We're just kind of going to get into some quick application and then uh, we will go into a time of communion uh, together as a church. So for the Bifords, I want you to know, so we've, as a church, we've agreed to take on sponsoring that cabin that they help run as a as the host church for that cabin. So this Christmas, there's a lot of ways that we wanna serve them, including buying presents for those kids. Uh, we also wanna provide meals for them. There's information about that in the foyer. That's being actually run up by Scotty and Lauren Jinks, who at the end of five years of difficulty are now helping bear another's burdens because they are, the gospel is still moving forward. Um, there are other groups, like we know that groups in the church have done things like sewn weighted blankets or bean bags for parents' night out. You can do that. Um, many people have donated funds to, uh, to the orphan care ministry, to Parents Night Out. That's another thing that's, that's optional to you. A, a really quick immediate one. So we just mentioned four more kids coming in, potentially six more in the near future. Well, guess what? More children means more childcare workers, particularly when those children need a little bit more help. And so we try even on some of those kids to do more of a one-to-one -one ratio on them, just to have somebody that's just there with them to care for them. So if you can make time to serve back there as these needs rise, as our church presses into difficulty, um, I know that that will be hugely needed. And I know Carolyn Yoey would love you for it. So it's like a win-win. Um, then also we talked about the uh, Nick and Zoe Threlkeld. They're one of these families that's looking to bring some more kids in their house. They could literally just, they could use a van that could hold their family plus these new children coming through. These are things that they actually need that they would love to have. Um, and then uh, anything else, you know, if you've got a heart for these parents and you just wanna come alongside and love them and counsel them and be kind to them and make them dinner, that's great. Um, if you're gifted in a certain skill, we could use it at Parents' Night Out, you know. Uh, we could do a cooking class. I don't know, I'm making things up. Um, if you're handy, some of these families could just use help around their homes. There's lots of ways to serve. Um, and then uh, we are constantly just looking for ways that the body can serve up because we are made better by it. We are made more like Christ by it. And then we preach that message to each other. And so we're going to continue in another way to preach that message to each other, which is through communion. Um, in the, we're going to remember, and the band's gonna start coming up and I'll pray, but um, we remember what the Lord has done for us and that it is through what the Lord has done for us that we then reach out into this world. And so communion is that. It is remembering Christ and then proclaiming him. So what that means is that there will be ushers that are coming forward. They will bring it to you. Um, it's just one, it's, it's two cups stacked. The bread is on the bottom, the juice is on the top. You take it and just pass it down. And during this time, you're gonna notice that there's, there's people in the back that are just there just to pray with you. So if you need prayer for anything, if you need prayer for comfort, if you just need encouragement, um, that, is, that is what those people are there for. So let me pray for us now. We will sing one song. I will come back up. We will take communion together and then we will continue worshiping the Lord. Lord, I thank you first for your faithfulness. You have provided comfort to so many of us. I pray that to the extent that you provided comfort, we would give it out. And that for any here today who still need that comfort, who need to know what can the Lord do, help us to let them know what the Lord can do, which is the Lord can save and redeem and make them new again. We believe that. So I pray that as our church 
uh, looks to serve, looks to be faithful, looks to be kind, looks to be giving, looks to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that we ourselves would be sanctified in it so that we would remember, not just from the scripture we read, but from the lives that we live, that God is good and he has saved us and he has redeemed us. We thank you for your kindness to us. May we worship you just with full hearts. It's in Christ's name.